0: Welcome to Beyond Prison. For today's episode, Kim and Brian caught up with Walter D. Griesen, Dean of the Honors College at Monmouth University. Dr. Greeson's research focuses on the comparative economic analysis of slavery, industrialization, and suburbanization. He serves as the treasurer for the Society of American City and Regional Planning History. With a variety of co-editors, Dr. Greeson has published Planning Future Cities, an innovative look at architecture, urbanism, and municipal design as well as The American Economy, a provocative examination of race, property, and wealth in the United States since 1750. His scholarly monogram, Suburban Erasure, won the Best Work of Nonfiction Award from the New Jersey Studies Academic Alliance in 2014. He also won grants from the Mellon Foundation and the National Endowment for the Humanities. His recent online resource, The Racial Violence Syllabus, attracted worldwide attention at the peak of the controversy surrounding the Unite the Right rally at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville, Virginia. Translated into seven languages, it reached more than four million direct users and drove the public debate surrounding the removal of Confederate memorials across the United States in venues as varied as National Public Radio, The Atlantic Magazine, and The Chronicle of Higher Education. Kim and Brian caught up with Dr. Greeson to talk about the racial violence syllabus in the wake of Charlottesville.
1: In the aftermath of the violence in Charlotte in mid-August, you began tweeting about the history of collective racial violence in America. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, what prompted you to start sharing these sources and tweeting about this event that had just happened, specifically?
2: Yeah, so um, I went to sleep troubled by by the previous day's uh, white nationalist riot, and it really I guess, struggled with the, the death of Heather Heyer and knew I was going to do something coming into Sunday. And so um, Toss Turn, Restless Night, woke up about 5 in the morning and, you know, couldn't sleep. So I went and got on Twitter and saw that lots of the conversation had centered on a hashtag called This Is Not Us and not was capitalized. And I was like, okay, this, this conversation cannot take the turn where there's just denial about the, the racial violence in American society. So it immediately made made me think of a course I, I had taught, you know, 15 years ago, uh, back in 2002. And from there, I, I basically just came into it and said, okay, let me try to walk through some of the basic elements and, and the things we talked about in that class and, and why I don't teach it anymore, but, people need to understand this legacy of white terrorism against uh, particularly African Americans. So I started tweeting probably like 5.30, quarter to 6 and putting together just off the top of my head websites and videos and resources that I knew were online. And, um, you know, I was familiar enough with Twitter that I, I knew how to thread a conversation. I knew I didn't want it to be, you know, go... For as long as the course could go with hundreds and hundreds of tweets so i i kind of capped it and thought of it. it was about you know 20 i think it ended up at 25 and yeah so for about an hour hour and a half i i tried to put these resources into easily digestible short statements and um by about seven twenty, seven thirty in the morning I, I when I finished, I looked at my notifications and they were already saying like 150,000 people had already seen it. <laughs> and at that point, I was like, "Wow, okay, that's more than I would have thought." But um, I, I went from there and was getting my family together for the day, and it was Sunday morning, so we were going to church and went out for the day. By the time I got back in the afternoon, it was it was already half a million people, and so I knew. Somebody was reading and spreading the word, and I was really grateful that, you know, I guess for those two weeks, it it reached about a little bit over four and a half million people, um, or four and a half million uses. There are different clicks on it that um, just was unprecedented for me. You know, I I might get a couple thousand people a day, which is still great, but nothing like what the response was for, for dealing with Charlottesville.
1: Hmm. 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 And here we go again, right? Uh, October seventh, uh, we had the, <laughs> the white nationalists carrying tiki torches, uh, marching in Charlottesville again. Mm-hmm. Um, were you surprised by this?
2: Oh no, no, not at all. I mean, the thing that strikes me is is the insidiousness of their persistence. Is that they feel like if they can reframe and show that they're going to continually harass this community. Um, that they can make progress on their agenda to get people to capitulate and accept their ideas. So my concern is the resilience of really the majority of Americans who are coming to an, a place of anti-racism where we're actively trying to reject white supremacy. I think that's most of all why I wrote the thread was that I felt like this was a time when people could hear that that evidence and and really change the way they looked at their world because I know when I first taught that course, the reactions that my students had were so severe. Like people were were vomiting, running from class to vomit in the hallway because they had never seen anything like it. And so, you know, at the end of the class, like the last two or three weeks, there were people breaking down and sobbing just for going through the reading material. So I thought this was a moment where people could actually – understand the content and see the urgency to reject the white nationalist agenda and I maybe I'm naive but I, I felt like this was the best opportunity to communicate that content in a way That wouldn't just be automatically rejected because people couldn't deal with it.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, So I, I mentioned, you know, we, we had you on before and we had some technical difficulties and that's why we're having you again. And and we both really appreciate you being so gracious uh, with us and and coming back on. But I mentioned, um, you know, during that first conversation that, you know, I was, I was driving and I, Heard your interview with A. Martinez uh, on Take Two. And uh, you were talking about how America has a long history of racial violence. And you cited some specific events, which you also talk about or that you tweeted about in, in that thread. Uh, the first one was uh, Cincinnati in 1829, and the second one was Philly in 1834. And do you mind talking a little bit about these events and telling us, you know, how? those events really shaped uh, those cities? And and anything else uh, that you might have to add to that?
2: Yeah. So this is one of my most controversial points when when I do presentations at at different universities and community centers, is um, lots of people, and I think, you know, historians, sociologists, scholars in general have done a really good job of educating the American public, mainly through colleges, sometimes through high schools, about Jim Crow laws and black codes and the, and the horror of Reconstruction and like how the white capping and the initial from Ku Klux Klan basically ripped democracy out of the hands of African Americans and, and anyone who stood for racial justice in the late 19th century. Um, my, my counter to that is that those Southern governments, the Redeemer governments, that came about to restore the Democratic Party, the white supremacist Democratic Party to power in the South, were taking a lot of their lessons about how to control free black people from northern communities in northern states that had drafted legislation during the gradual emancipation period. Hmm. And so I say that to kind of frame what happened in Philadelphia and Cincinnati was um, a continuation of a process that had happened even in New York City and in Boston, where, as a, I can't even say, gradually emancipated Africans <laughs> at the end of the 18th century, um, they they just kind of had a, an unfree status. That is, there were laws passed to prevent African Americans from owning land and voting and serving on juries and just generally enjoying the same rights and privileges as all the white citizens in these northern cities. Mm-hmm. And so in that context, um, Cincinnati in eighteen twenty nine, Philadelphia in eighteen thirty four are natural outgrowths outgrowth of the local patterns of rejecting any kind of African American presence in in the city. And so these events were part of the way that the early republic, the second generation of Americans we're saying that it was a, a white society, a white man's society, if not exclusively a landowner's society, and that it was never designed to accommodate African Americans as free political actors or as landowners or having economic autonomy. So that that's ultimately why I started with, with those two events, was to frame this as not a Southern story, but as a national story of white supremacy in state legislation, in in the way that violence and terrorism shaped the way we the north evolved long before you
3: had black codes and Jim Crow laws in the south.
1: Mm -hmm.
3: Mm -hmm. I'm shifting gears a little bit here but I you know your your thread was incredibly valuable and important in chronicling you know acts of collective racial violence throughout American history and I was just wondering sort of on the other side of that you know in response to any of these events or more broadly if you could talk about any examples um, of, of ways that black communities in the late 19th and early early 20th century organized against this violence or for self-defense? And if any of those lessons or strategies or tactics could be useful in informing resistance today?
2: I think it's Emoja's book, um, We Will Shoot Back is really spectacular in this point. The idea of black self-defense is also deep into the 19th century and precedes the civil war and um, really animated African-American enlistment in the Civil War to form units and go and fight to, to liberate themselves and their families and their communities from, from slavery and, and white supremacy. So in the late 19th century, you had the expansion of gun clubs. You have you know, a lot of the, the mythology surrounding uh, Booker T. Washington and the Tuskegee movement fuels this notion of a, a non-violent continuum of um, resistance or accommodation that emerges in this period that, that obscures the traditions of violent black self-defense. And um, so there are events, I think it was the 1851 um, Christiana, Pennsylvania uh, riot, where slave catchers invaded a small town in southeastern Pennsylvania, and they're basically gunfire exchanged, trying to protect um, black slaves, but they are captured, taken back into slavery. This whole process, it's not as one-sided as I, I was kind of highlighting the white violence in the thread. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, like, even in the case of the uh, Chicago riot in 1919, like, people describe that as a race war. I mean, yeah, African Americans got the worst out of it, but they were certainly taking their rifles, taking their pistols, and shooting white mobs that were chasing them as well and trying to attack. So there is this recurring piece of African Americans standing up and and fighting back. However, for me reading, my reading of the record, the death is is a lot more one-sided. You have many more black people being killed in these kinds of incidents than you see, you know, white deaths. And so I don't Mm -hmm. want to get into the numbers of it, but there's always a multiple... Of black people killed versus the number of white people killed mm-hmm. right
1: yeah and you're not saying that you know these things are are on par um no what you're basically saying is that black people were willing to defend themselves and the, the narrative, you know, and correct me if I'm wrong, the narrative of, you know, nonviolence, which people really like to use in, you know, in a, a way to sort of do some finger wagging. Right. um, And you see this, you know, uh, on Twitter a lot where they'll quote MLK, you know, it's like, as you have, white nationalists, white supremacists marching, you know, in, in cities and towns across this country. And it's like, what are you talking about? So (laughs) I think that, you know, just uh, for, for the sake of clarity, um, you know, making, making that point is, it might be really useful. The other Incident that you talked about, and I'd like to hear a little bit more about this. Was what happened in Philly, and I found this really striking because as someone who studied Philadelphia rather closely and looked at, you know, Du Bois's work in, you know, in a context of the Seventh Ward and and whatnot, and clearly Du Bois was writing much later than this event, but in none of the historical documents that I come across, this riot, and I felt like. You know, I was like, wait, what? So this is one of those Twitter moments where I was just like, oh, my God, I have I I follow some amazing people. And I'm really appreciative for, you know, for you sharing this information. But the thing that stood out to me was also the fact that that link that you shared describes the formation of the earliest police force or one of the earliest police forces in the country. And, you know, in in light of the antagonism that continues to exist in Philly between the Black community or Black communities and the, um, the Philadelphia Police Department, I found this really interesting, if not striking. And I was wondering if you had some thoughts on that.
2: No, um, the final tweet in the thread was about mapping police violence. And um, there have been a Number of major breakthroughs in the last 20 years and that's just in the time that I've really been engaged in the study of discriminatory policing and the ways that state violence came to replace mob violence, especially after the, the civil right, passage of the civil rights laws and the emergence of the prison-industrial complex, you know the, I think I wrote in an essay maybe two or three years ago, that the rate of police killings in the 21st century had exceeded. The rate per year of lynchings at the at the peak lynching periods of the late nineteenth century, and you know when when I came across that data point and just realized like we were seeing things on television and and through our media generally even mm-hmm. newspapers and now digital digital outlet that were just tolerant of a morass i don 't know it an abyss of <laughs> of just organized violence that just kills just thousands and thousands of people with, with no real attention or outrage um, in really unjustified ways that violate their fundamental human rights. And so the fact to uncover the, the, the depth of the continuing injustice, that's the kind of thing that made me believe we could, we could have these kinds of conversations publicly now. Because I do remember when I first came into it in the mid to late 90s, You know, there were were serious threats about, you know, COINTELPRO-type activities. And and that by just being affiliated with people asking these questions and raising this evidence, you know, you may never get a job. You may be fired from whatever position you you may be lucky enough to attain that you could face violence. I mean, frankly, in the town I live in, there was such celebration for um, the Trump election last year but, you know, we were we remained on guard. I was going to say we were on guard. We remain on guard because so many of the Trump supporters are so unpredictable and can lash out at any point. Within a month after the election, um, my, my younger son was in kindergarten, and the superintendent sent a notice home saying that um, someone, a parent at, at the school, had stalked and harassed a kindergartner saying that they didn't belong in the country and then threatening them not to show up at the school again. And what? so, you know, this this is insane. And you know, I I'll be real honest. My family, we talk about this every single day. Like, you know, what are what are the threats that we're facing from our neighbors, from people that we can't necessarily anticipate where the threat is coming from.
1: Mhm. Mhm. Yeah. I think um another thing that um that was raised in, um, in, in the link about Philadelphia has to do with the attack on the first African Presbyterian church in Philly in the 1830s. And when I was reading this, you know, the, the thing that, that struck me was that there's no safe place or safe space for black people, not even places of worship are off limits to this racial violence Right, and when we think about, you know, what happened at um, the Emanuel A.M.E. Church in 2015, you know, with Dylan Roof and uh, killing all of those people there, it just, you know, it, and and the long history. Like these aren't just the two events that that we have in in history, but that there's a continuum that this is a continuation and going back to something you said earlier when you that you said inspired you was the hashtag you know this not us Mm -hmm. and I'm thinking you know as I was reading that this is very much who America is you know this is what America is and I was wondering if you know um if you could talk a little bit about you know that that the importance or the significance of churches as a safe space perhaps and it, how that is really threatened and undermined with you know everything that's going on and
2: yeah no i mean churches it, it's so strange i i want to frame frame my answer briefly by saying after the interview that you heard that i had done with the southern california public radio folks People at my job approached me and said to me, You know, well, why didn't you talk about the anti Irish violence or why didn't you talk about the anti Italian violence? I hate it when people talk about the Klan and they don't talk about the way they attacked Catholics. And I, I literally wrote two chapters of a book about that kind of discrimination in the context of evolving racial violence. And so that was tremendously frustrating for me in that since the Civil Rights Acts have passed, Catholics. And religious minorities generally, aside from Muslims recently, last 15, 20 years, have enjoyed better protections than they've ever enjoyed in the history of the world anywhere. It's one of the most tolerant societies from 1965 to 1995 for religious diversity is the United States. And so the kinds of bigotry that these folks were complaining about has disappeared, not coincidentally. That same period has seen the rapid secularization, secularization, of the African American community, where there isn't the same engagement and understanding of the Black Church and its historic role. But during Jim Crow and and prior to the Civil War, especially, Black churches were the only autonomous spaces where African Americans could enjoy anything that resembled the freedoms that the white white society enjoyed, and so. Ministers played a very different role as the primary scholars and political organizers prior to the Civil War and then set up the way that we created the historically black college and university system in the late 19th century. And even within the Plessy versus Ferguson Jim Crow system nationally, created widespread black public school systems that allowed people to first become literate and then begin to graduate elementary school and junior high. By the 1920s, attending high school and college in significant numbers, mm-hmm. so the Black Church built in in really fundamental ways what it meant to be free as an African American in the country. So, of course, the folks nationalists like Dylan Roof will be, he explicitly targeted one of the oldest Black churches in the country,
1: mm-hmm. and
2: so this was like the the drawing of the battle line is first uproot this place. That has nurtured a sense of a multiracial and inclusive democracy. So, yeah, I I could go for a couple of hours on this notion of
0: <laughs> the importance
2: of the black church and the different examples we have, but yeah. we've forgotten so much of that, and uh, and there's not a way to get people to appreciate it because so many professional, well-educated African Americans have taken themselves out of church communities, and it's not really a. Um, Vi- viable or thriving part of their life.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maureen? You-
3: yeah, can- I have another question, you know, on the subject of of protections and the sort of questions you were getting from your colleagues, um, you know, we noticed that free speech is the common defense that we hear for these white supremacist gatherings, specifically you know, like we just saw in Charlottesville, you know, we even see ostensibly anti-racist liberals throwing their hands up to defend the right to assemble, even if they're inciting violence, even if the foundation of these gatherings are incitements to violence. I'm just wondering, you know, if you have any thoughts on this notion of free speech and if, you know, there are sort of any historical threads on the use of free speech to justify these incitements to violence.
2: Oh, yeah white supremacists routinely fall back on this over the last 100, 150 years to say, you know, First Amendment protects their right. And then it's not just the right to speech or the right to assemble that people tie to the First Amendment. I mean, people take the right to assemble, and they try to apply that to, like, whole neighborhoods, that they have the right to maintain an all-white neighborhood mm-hmm. so that they they don't have to deal with people of a different ethnicity or background from them. So these kinds of specious arguments are never grounded in any solid legal reasoning. They're generally rhetorical claims designed to end any challenge. Mm-hmm. And and the hypocrisy, of the course, is that these same advocates for free speech will never defend the rights for um, marginal, marginalized populations, folks who have been terrorized to speak their their experiences and and tell their truth about what has happened to them. So these are always just kind of flimsy and transparent attempts to silence a conversation that could actually improve the society. They're not actually even any kind of informed expression of freedom of speech. Mm
1: -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, You recently published a book called Planning Future Cities. Can you tell us a little bit about that book?
2: Okay, so yeah, this is uh, one of my favorite new projects and and a lot of my publishing in the last two or three years has been about taking um, experimental methods from my classroom and then turning them into teaching tools, turning them into ways of exploring uh, traditional scholarly topics in in really fundamentally different ways. And so um, Planning Future Cities is something I've been working on in one way or another for more than a decade. It's basically taking the subject matter that most fundamentally changed my life, the understanding of how institutions evolve, like how do we have um, systems of government that maintain roadways and build electrical grids and provide for fresh water, the treatment of sewage, how do all these places we live get created? And so coming out of the African-American history tradition, this was fascinating to me because I saw this history of black communities being destroyed over and over and over again. And I'm I'm literally living in a place where I'm fighting every day to preserve remnants of black communities that are getting built over. And so one of the greatest frustrations for me in dealing with Fellow activists, folks who put their lives on the line to try and defend and expand freedom, is that they don't understand the systems of governance and commerce that are constantly eroding our ability to to fight back and stand up for ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so, I wanted to get a book together that was about urban and municipal and state planning and all of the tools and techniques. That are typically outside of the hands of black leaders to actually build and maintain places that expand on what the black church initially was conceived as, and so that's what planning future cities is—is is a way to have inclusive communities that shares the power of decision making over the basic human resources and and institutional resources that. We typically associate with white neighborhoods and places of, of tremendous affluence. It's being able to create high standards of living for all people, regardless of race and ethnicity and income, religious background. Um, that's what I hope to accomplish with that book.
1: Oh, fascinating. Well, I definitely will be you know, nudging your publisher to send us a review. Oh, yeah, copy yeah, so that Definitely. We can- definitely. You know, have you back on and to really talk about that?
3: You know, I really thank you for your time, Walter. And and echoing Kim, I'm really excited uh, for that book and hope we can have you on for that. You know, I would love to hear, sort of in closing, what what abolition means to you. But um, I want to add to that because I know we asked you that last time. Um, how you see your work as liberatory?
2: So yeah, those those are really fundamental questions i i can't think of times where i'm not engrossed in, in in that kind of reflection um from the moment i wake up in the morning to whenever i manage to fall back to sleep at night then there are times where i wish you know i could have a little bit more peace of mind but you know abolition to me is the ability to create not unfettered freedom, but an informed freedom for all people so that we can better uplift and create spaces for us to have everything we need to live fulfilled lives. Like at the base of it, the the jail, the prison is about marginalizing and kind of restricting who we misunderstand or people who have acted out and we didn't know how else to deal with them. And so it's it's about the scarcity of our resources. We didn't want to take the time to solve the more complicated issues this person may have been dealing with. Mm. So we just put them away from us and kind of forget that they exist and don't worry about whatever consequences flow from that choice. And so, for me, we can't settle for the easy solution any longer. Like, we're... I, I through my economic analysis, have seen that we live in an abundant world. Like, it doesn't have to be the inheritance of settler colonialism where we're hollowing out Africa and Asia in order to enrich North America and Western Europe, that we have sufficient resources to make a really sustainable planet, and we're choosing not to. And so ultimately, that's that's where my work in abolition comes in. It's, a, it's about the abolition of the systems of exploitation and expropriation that have defined the last 500 years. And then building something that will sustain our planet, sustain the species, non-human species, plant and animal, and sustain ourselves and our descendants in ways that meet our highest I- ideals. And so um, that's, that's the activism I'm involved in, is, is the work of creating an economy that rewards people like the two of you who do this work, at tremendous sacrifice and enormous courage. And often have to struggle to kind of keep ends meet and make everything stable and move on to do the next good thing that you want to take on. Um, You
1: just said something right there. (laughs) So, you
2: you know, that's that's been my thing. I've been dreaming for a long time about you know what if what if Lyndon Johnson had instead of just doing the civil rights legislation, gotten Martin Luther King to be one of the prime stakeholders in like an early Apple or IBM company. And, like, he was able to become one of these multi-billionaires who showed us how to build a cooperative economy through the 70s and 80s. Like, Mm
3: -hmm. I don't
2: need to see the guys who are just very greedy and and figuring out, oh, you know, I I can put a rocket on Mars. Just give me another $3 billion. Like, there's a lot of stuff we can do right here on Earth. And and I'm trying to make more folks with enough resources to do some amazing things.
3: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I love that. That's a great answer. Thank you so much, Walter. Um, we'll definitely be inviting you again. And I really appreciate your time and, and your wonderful insight today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much um, for reaching out
1: can here. Where can people find you in your work?
2: Oh, so um, the easiest thing is Twitter, at World Professor, that's, that's where, where it's kind of quick. Um, if you go there, you can find all like the books that I do are there. And, and my primary occupation is uh, Dean of the honor School at Monmouth University. In New Jersey and so I invite everybody to come to campus where that's a big part of this is that there's so much scholarship aid and so many opportunities for students to learn this material and build their lives around it. Um, I have 150 seats in my honor school for next fall so I'd love to your listeners to fill my class up.
1: Oh that'd be amazing.
3: Thank you so much. Thank you so much.